As Christians, we often remember the things that Jesus has done. But have you ever wondered, what is He doing right now? Well, in Romans 8, we read that He is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. In other words, Christ is our continuing advocate with the Father. He's always interceding on behalf of His people. And in today's study of John 17, we'll see a primary example of that intercession. All right, this morning's text, as we said a few moments ago, is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Now, why is it called that? Why do we call this the high priestly prayer? There's got to be a lot of other names we could consider. You could call it the very nice prayer, maybe even the very long prayer, because it's the longest prayer we have of Jesus throughout all of the Scripture. Why the high priestly prayer? Why not the Savior's prayer? Why do we refer to it in this way? Well, in order to answer that, let me ask you a different question. What was the job in the Old Testament of a priest? When you think back to the guys in the tall pointy hats in the Old Testament, when you think back to the priesthood, when you think of Aaron and Levi and guys like that, what was their job? What did they do? What purpose did they exist to serve? Well, if we were to list all the things they did, we could probably come up with a significant list of activities. And yet, if we were to summarize that list, we'd say this. The priest's job was to stand before God on behalf of the people. The job of the priest was to intercede before God on behalf of the rest of God's people. Now, sometimes that intercession looked like this. Sometimes, once a year, the priest, the high priest, would go into the temple, not just to the temple, but into the Holy of Holies. And there he would have an encounter with God on behalf of the people. Now, at other times, the priest would offer sacrifices. In general, the priest's job was to stand before God and vouch, pray for these people who had sinned so terribly and so badly in times past with the idea, with the idea that God might be gracious to them. They interceded. They were advocates for the people. This is one of the functions that they served. Now, if you were an Old Testament believer, let's say you're someone and you're living in Bethlehem or Nazareth or what have you, and you've got a priest, what kind of priest do you want? If the job of that guy is to stand before God on behalf of you, what do you expect of that guy? What kind of attributes do you want that guy to have? Well, at a minimum, you might want him to be uh, holy. You know, that's a good start. Righteous, devout, all these different things. If you had someone standing before God and you right now, interceding for you, you would want that person to be the most holy, righteous, devout person that you could find. The problem was, in the Old Testament especially, they had a lot of priests, but few of them looked like that. Few of them were holy and righteous and devout in the way that the people needed and which God was worthy of. In our Sunday school class, we're doing 1 Samuel, just started last week. You want a good Sunday school class? Come back next week, 8.50 in the gym. We'll be in the chapter 2, I think, next week of 1 Samuel. Well, in 1 Samuel, we encounter a priest right near the beginning of the book. A priest. What's his name? Eli. Good priest or bad priest? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'll just say bad priest. And I'll say that his sons were bad priests. This is a motley crew. This was a slovenly crew. This was a greedy crew. And they were not the worst. They were not the worst. In the book of Ezekiel, God takes his prophet Ezekiel aside and says, all right, Ezekiel, I'm going to show you some stuff. And he showed Ezekiel all of the nonsense, all the idolatry, all the things that were going on in Jerusalem and even in the temple. And then he showed him the priests. He says, you just look at these guys. Here's what God says in Ezekiel 22. He says, my priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between what is holy 
and what is profane. They have not taught the difference between the clean and the unclean, and they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. So here's the thing, in Ezekiel's day and, and in a whole swaths of the Old Testament, there were guys in tall pointy hats. If you ask where the priest is, you'd say, well, that guy, because they looked apart externally. But inwardly, they were just rotten. They were bad, no good. And God regularly identified them as rotten and bad and no good. The intercessors that the people had for huge seasons of time didn't intercede very effectively because they were some of the most profane individuals in Israel. Now... If you were to stand before God right now, if you right now had an appointment, a meeting with your maker, and you had to have someone standing between you and your heavenly father, would you want one of those guys from the Old Testament, or would you want something better? Well, ideally, you'd want something better. You would want a priest who was holy and righteous. But you might want something even better than that. If you're coming before God the Father, and you're going to stand before God the Father, then you know who the ultimate intercessor to take your case before the Father would be? God's own Son. And that's what we see in today's text. In today's text, it's called the high priestly prayer because this is what happens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, goes before God the Father and prays to God on behalf of the people. He intercedes for them in ways that the Old Testament priests rarely, if ever, did. He stands before God and he says, God, watch over my disciples. Watch over them when I am gone, when I am departed, when I am taken, when I am put on the cross, when I ascend even up to you. Watch over them because this world is hard, this world is dark. And they need your help. And he says, what's more than that? Don't just watch over them, these guys I've been spending my time with, but watch out over all of those whose word they carry too. Watch over all of those who believe, not just of this generation, but every generation. Watch over them. He interceded for his disciples in today's text, but he also intercedes for you. And that's what we're going to see as we work through it. All right, let me reread verses 1 through 5, then we'll just kind of make our way through as, as best as time will allow. Verses 1 through 5, this is coming at the very end of a very hard night here. This is his final prayer right before his betrayal, verses 1 through 5. So Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. The whole reason I'm here, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. All right. It's been said that the high priestly prayer that we're looking at has three sections. There's three categories. Now, in the first five verses, most theologians say that Jesus is praying principally for himself here in the first five verses. However, when Jesus prays for himself, it's a whole lot different than when you and I pray for ourselves. Let me ask you, have you prayed for yourself this week, this month? I hope you have. But what has that prayer sounded like? Well, I know what these prayers sound like because I pray them too. And here's how it works. We go before God, and typically, typically the catalyst for us standing before God is some need that we have. In other words, something might happen in the course of a day or during a week that has been difficult or challenging, or maybe there's something on our horizon that's kind of scary. And so most often we come to God when we have some need, and we give him a prescription. We say, God, please do this. We come to God with our needs more often than anything else. Now, there's other things we can and should be doing in prayer, You've heard the acrostic, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. 
you know, these are the things that make up a healthy prayer life. Well, we tend to minor in the first three, but we really major in the fourth one. We're really good at supplication. We're good at coming to God and saying, God, 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 I need your help. And our needs may be very real and very significant, and they may be weighing us down. And so we come to him and say, God, would you help with this, with X, Y, Z? And the good news is he's there. He listens, and he acts. He responds. Now, maybe not always the way we want. Maybe our prescription doesn't always match up with his. And yet, he never turns a deaf ear to us when we pray to him. So our prayers for ourselves, though, typically, typically lean towards our needs, our circumstances, and such. With that said, in these first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself, but it's not necessarily a prayer that he's praying on behalf of his circumstances or his immediate fears, although there were certainly some scary things on his horizon. But rather, what he seems to be doing in these first five verses is praying for himself, but praying that through whatever he does and whatever comes next and whatever he's done in the past three years of his ministry, that all of it would what? He says that all of it might glorify you. His prayer fascinatingly, interestingly, has the glory of God the Father in center view. Now, how often do you do that? I know I don't do it nearly as often as I should, and here's the reason why. Because, again, we pray and we say, all right, God, this uh, vocational issue, this relationship concern, this financial concern, this health issue, God, really, I need your help here. Now, we see the outcome. Let's say it's a health issue. We see the outcome of the health issue as being, I'll be happier and healthier. God, if you would remedy this concern, you know, this knee, this cancer, whatever it is, if you would remedy this concern, then man, I, I will be so much happier. I'll be healthier. God, I could really use this. And again, that's understandable. However, however, what we don't think of as often is how would the glory of God be impacted if God were to heal you? How would the glory of God be impacted if he was to resolve your financial concern? If you have a job, a vocational thing, maybe you're contemplating a move or something like that, then a reasonable question to ask is, how will God be glorified through that transition? Whatever you're praying to him this week, this month, one thing we can learn from the first five verses here of Christ's own prayer to his Father is that the glory of the Father was the centerpiece of what he prayed for. Is it ours? It can be, but you've got to train yourself to think that way. If you have a hardship or something on your heart, maybe even this morning, try thinking about when you bring that to God and say, God, would you help me with X, Y, Z? Try asking yourself, how would God resolving X, Y, Z in my life bring him glory? And if you come up with an answer, then incorporate it in your prayer. Lord, help me with X, Y, Z because, because X, Y, Z being resolved would bring you more glory in whatever way is appropriate given the circumstances involved. Again, we rarely do that, but it's a centerpiece of these first five verses. Now, another thing that's interesting in these first five verses is the idea that there's Jesus. He's facing the cross and and all manner of just horrible wickedness and evil in the immediate future. Like, not a week later, just in the immediate future. But it's cool that in the face of what he was looking at, the betrayer had just gone out. I mean, this is all going down really quick here. And in the face of that, it's neat to see that he lifts his eyes up and just talks to his father. He just talks to his father in this relational way that's just heavy with love and affection. You know, over the centuries, people have prayed to God or gods with a lowercase g. They prayed to all manner of stone deities, but rarely with this sort of tenderness that we see a son praying to his father, and we see that in verses 1 through 5. 
All right, for time's sake, let's look at the second part of this prayer. I'm going to read verses 6 through 19. This is the largest chunk. But in verses 6 through 19, what Jesus is doing now is praying not necessarily just for himself per se and his circumstances and God's glory, but also how God's glory would be impacted if God were to look out after his disciples, if the Father was to look out after you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these different sort of guys. So let's read verses 6 through 19. Verse 6. I have manifested your name. Father, I've manifested your name to the men that you've given me. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Look at them vouching for them. These are your guys, Father. Now they have known all the things that you've given me. They're from you. They know it. Verse 8, for I've given to them the words that you gave to me, and they've received them, and they've known surely that I've come forth from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I pray for them. Verse 9, I pray for them. I don't pray for the world as a whole. I don't pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I'm glorified in them. Verse 11, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I've kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition. Who's he referring to? Judas, right? None of them is lost except the son of perdition, verse 12, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was always expected and anticipated that this would happen. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the devil, he says there. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, and you sent me into the world, that I might also send them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Look at that. Look at that. How cool is that? You ever want to know that God's on your side? God is on your side. Look at what Jesus Christ did for his saints. He says, look at them, Father. They love you. I've given them your word. They've sown it in their heart. But this world is dark. This world is hard. And there's a devil like a roaring lion that prowls among it. And apart from your watching over them, Father, apart from your watching over them, they'd be devoured. Lord God, watch over them. Protect them. Let their joy be full. Watch out. Protect them from the evil one. But at the same time, sanctify them, make them better, even if they even want you to never touch them, sanctify them in your word and in your truth. I wonder, I wonder if there's any employers in the room here, any bosses. If you're an employer, do you regularly pray for your employees? Do you regularly intercede for them spiritually? Most employers, as a side note, most employers don't, I think, even in the Christian community. At least they don't do it as often as as they should. And the reason why is because the relationship that a a boss, an employer, has with an employee, that relation or that dynamic is usually one where the employee looks out after my welfare. That's how this works. I hired him to help take care of me, right? So the dynamic, usually we don't train ourselves to think the reverse. I think I exist. I've been placed in this role to look out after him. But that's what we see here in the high priestly prayer. Jesus had called disciples and trained them and raised them up. These were his men. These were his foot soldiers. He's the captain of the Lord's army. These are his foot soldiers. And yet look at here what he does. He says, God, we got to watch out after my boys here. Protect them. Take care of them. Safe. Guard them. 
You know, Jesus, he only spent five verses praying for himself. Five verses. He spends 13 praying for his men, praying for the troops, praying for those that were being sent out as even as he was going to ascend to the Father. Now, there's three specific things that he prayed for them for. I'm sure across the breadth of his ministry, he prayed a whole lot of stuff for people. Everything he knew about Peter, he probably had a whole, whole list of things he prayed for Peter all the time. But here, there's three specific things that he prays, broadly speaking, for, for his disciples. The first was that his disciples would have their joy fulfilled in the days yet to come. That's fascinating. Their joy fulfilled. When they go out into this dark world, Lord God, keep their heart up. Keep their heart up. Now, the second thing that he prayed for was that the Father would protect them from the evil one, from the devil. We have no idea how dangerous the devil is. Well, Jesus does. And so he says, God, keep them safe, keep them safe, keep them safe. The third thing he prayed for specifically was that they would be sanctified in the word, sanctified in truth. He knew that three years of public ministry wasn't enough to fully disciple these men to know everything that they ought to know and to do all the things that they ought to do. He knew that they were still rough around the edges. He spent time with Peter and the others. He knew they were rough around the edges. But he knew that they didn't always have to be so rough and that in time yet to come, they could be increasingly holy and righteous if, if they are to be sanctified in what this says. You know, those of us in this room or outside this room who think we don't need this, eh, this is the life bread for the believer. What did Jesus say? Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in your word. Not sanctify them on the golf course or in the other setting that they might want and desire to be, but put them in environments where they will come into contact with your word. So this is what he prays. Give them joy in this darkened world, protect them from the devil, and sanctify them using your word and your truth to do so. If you're a parent or a grandparent, do you pray that for your kids? Or some variation? This is a simple formula. I'm not always good on formulas per se, but this is a pretty easy one. Praying for your children, your spouse, your grandchildren, your loved ones, your employees. God, I pray that they have joy in their walk. I pray you keep them safe in their walk. And I pray they'd be better tomorrow than they are today by being immersed in your word. That's a good prayer to have. And that's the prayer that Jesus had for his disciples. All right, let's, again, for time's sake, let's jump ahead. Let's look at verses 20 through 26. In these verses now, Jesus has prayed for himself in the first five verses. Then the next 13 verses, he prayed for his disciples. Now who's he going to pray for? I'm looking at him. Now, in his last verses, verses 20 through 26, he's going to pray for all believers wherever they might be. Verse 20, Jesus said this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So remember, he's standing, he's at the table and so forth. He says, Lord, Father, I don't pray for these guys here alone, but also for all those who will hear their word in the time yet to come. Verse 21, that they all might be as one, as you, Father, and me, and I'm in you, that they might be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you've given me, I've given them, that they might be one just as we are one. I'm in them, you're in me that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be, may go, may be where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and these, these that have known you, these that have known you have known that you've sent me, and I've declared to them your name, and I will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them as well. All right. Again, the previous verses, 
Jesus had prayed for his disciples, but now he's saying, Lord God, as these men go out into this world, as they go to Corinth and Ephesus and Berea and Jerusalem and Bethlehem and elsewhere, as they go out, they're going to have various hardships, but as they go out, they're going to reach others who are going through different hardships, and I also want you to look after them as well. And not just them, but all those that they would tell on through the generations up until this very day. Now, it's interesting, when he prays for all these people of which we are part, the key component, if you were listening to those six verses, is he keeps talking about what we would call unity, oneship. He says, God, Father, you and me are one. You and me are one. This is a, an example of a verse that uh, refers to the Trinity, this idea that the, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are co-equal, co-eternal, equal in power and glory and the like. You and me are one, but I also want them to be one. I also want them to be one. In the Trinity, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Three persons, one God. The church is made up of many believers, including those in this room. Many believers. One body. And this is the point Jesus is making. It's one body. It's a united body. Made up of believers in this room, but also outside this room. He says, let them be one. Now, he knew that our tendency is not always to act that way. He knew that firsthand because his own disciples didn't act that way. His own disciples were, you know, bickering and fighting about who got to sit to his right and his left in the kingdom yet to come. He knew that unity comes hard, and he'd seen it firsthand with his own disciples, and yet he knew how essential it was. If the ministry of that body was to be a healthy ministry, it was going to be healthy because the body was being united. If my hand hates my foot, my eye hates my ear, if my various parts are odds one with one another, how effective will the body be as a whole? will not vary. If my left foot goes somewhere different than my right foot goes, how am I going to walk? I'm not going to. In the same way, the body of Christ is called to unity, which we see here. And this is what he prays for. He doesn't just pray for protection and provision and sanctification, although all that's stated across these 26 verses. But he also emphasizes this needs to be one. One body. One blood. Then, then interestingly this body that is one, he adds something. He says, this one body, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire, I want, I'm hoping for this, I desire this, I desire that they also whom you've given me may, may be where I am. How fascinating is that? The God who made you, the God who's seen all the things that you've said and done, wants to be with you for all eternity in spite of what he knows about you. I've said this before, but if everyone in this room knew everything you'd ever did, if everyone in this room, to your left and your right, knew your darkest secrets, we couldn't move fast enough to get away from one another, corporately speaking. If we knew every rotten thing we'd ever thought or said about the people to our sides. However, God knows a whole lot of it, and yet what does he want? He says, I want them to be with me. Father, Father, I desire that they would be with, with me. Now, if you've ever lost someone that you love, and if you have any gray in your hair at all, then you have. But if you ever lost someone you love, especially lost someone in Christ, the sting is real. The hardship is real. The, the hole in your life is real. Nothing will minimize that per se. But yet it's interesting to think that when God came and took your loved one, in a sense, it was an answer to this prayer that the Son out of the Father. The Son says, I want these people. I want my saints. I want my brethren. I want my disciples. Not just those disciples, but the other disciples that they'll meet. I want them to be with me. I desire that where I'm at, 
they would be also. In fact, what did he tell his own disciples and the other gospel records? He says, in my father's house are many mansions. I go, and when I go, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. How cool is that? The God who made you, the God who formed you, isn't content just to spin you like a top, have you go do your thing, and to stand back and look at you from a distance. Rather, he says, I want to be where they are, and I want them to be where I'm at. And I'm going to lay my life down on the line in order to make that outcome possible in order to make that outcome real. Father, permit your people to dwell with us in eternity, is what he said in verse 24, because it's there that they will feel my embrace. It's there that I will wipe away their tears. It's there we'll be together forever. It's there that we will be as one. As we look to wrap up here this morning, we said that this is this high priestly prayer is Jesus the Son interceding on behalf of the people before the Father. I've often heard the word intercession kneecapped limited in ways that I don't do it justice. One way is sometimes it's, it's equated, the intercession of Jesus standing before God the Father is equated to like that of a lawyer. And no lawyer jokes, but that's how sometimes it's thought through. It's like a lawyer. And it's like a civic servant, you know, someone standing before you, you know, representing you before a higher power. Well, here's the difference. If you have a lawyer representing you in, in a case, interceding on your behalf, an advocate for you, when the case is done, the lawyer doesn't want you to come live with them. God does. You don't want to live with a lawyer either. All right, there's my lawyer joke. But here's the thing. This is not just client advocacy. This is not just a lawyer who for a season stands before the father, intercedes, and then is done, and then is off to his lunch date with someone else. When Jesus intercedes before the father for you, he never stops interceding for you. I want you to think about this. Here in John 17, as we close, John 17, high priestly prayer. God the Son advocated for his disciples and for all the lot of us before the Father. But that intercession, that advocacy doesn't end when chapter 17 ends. It continues to this very day, to this very moment. Several verses, I won't read them all, but several verses tell us that right now, no matter what you're facing this week, no matter the scary thing that's on your horizon no matter what you might encounter today or maybe what you don't even know is around the corner, God the Son continues to intercede and advocate for you as you face these things. Romans 8.34 Romans 8.34 says that even right now, Jesus the Son is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. 1 John 2.1, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7.25, read that Jesus always lives and breathes to make intercession for the saints. The high priest is not done with his high priestly duties. The high priest hasn't ceased his priestly responsibilities. After laying down his life in Calvary, which he would do just moments, so to speak, after this prayer was uttered, after laying down his life on Calvary and what was the ultimate priestly sacrifice, he now intercedes for the very ones whose names are written on his hands even now, and that includes you if you're a believer. Right now, your name's written on his hands. Your needs are on his lips as he stands before the Father seeking your welfare and seeking your good. No matter what 2024 might bring, that's an encouraging thought. Let's pray. To search through an archive of Dr. Holt's previous sermons, please visit us at fpcgulfport.org or you can look us up at sermonaudio.com.